A long time ago, I entirely abandoned the study of letters, resolving to seek no knowledge other than that which could be found in myself or else in the great book of the world. As I then desired to give my attention solely to the search after truth, I thought, I ought to reject as absolutely false all opinions in regard to which I could suppose the least ground for doubt, in order to ascertain whether after that there remained in my belief that which was wholly indubitable. Accordingly, seeing that our senses sometimes deceive us, I was willing to suppose that there existed nothing really such as they presented to us. The very same thoughts which we experience when awake may also be experienced when we are asleep. While there is at that time not one of them true, I supposed that all the objects that had ever entered into my mind when awake had in them no more truth than the illusions of my dreams. But immediately upon this I observed that, whilst I thus wished to think that all was false, it was absolutely necessary that I, who thus thought, should be somewhat. And as I observed that this truth, I think, therefore I am, was so certain and of such evidence that no ground of doubt, however extravagant, could be alleged by the skeptics capable of shaking it, I concluded that I might, without scruple, accept it as the first principle of the philosophy of which I was in search. I thence concluded that I was a substance whose whole essence or nature consists only in thinking, and which, that it may exist, has no need of place, nor is dependent on any material thing, so that I, that is to say, the mind by which I am what I am, is wholly distinct from the body, and is even more easily known than the latter. Welcome to Nira's Fiddle, Episode 24, The Second Axis. You know the quote. You could even recite it in Latin for me. So today, I thought I'd give you Rene Descartes' famous quote in context. It's from his book, Discourse on Method, where it originally appeared in French. Je pense, donc je suis. Before appearing in his Principles in Philosophy, where he famously wrote it in Latin, cogito ergo sum. But why did this simple idea get so famous? It's kind of obvious, don't you think? I think, therefore I am. In other words, I know I exist because I'm thinking this thought. Did Descartes become so famous for stating something so mundanely obvious? And how could the self-evident statement change the world? I promise we'll get there in just a bit, but first a little background. This episode will talk about what Europeans were thinking about from 1600-ish to the later part of the 1700s. But before we dive into it, it's helpful to think about what thinkers in this period were doing. God is playing less and less of a role in the thought of the time, to the point that when we make it to the French Revolution during the last decade of the 1700s, 
the movement would be almost entirely secular and even hostile to many long-standing Christian institutions. Think of it this way. Most children believe in Santa Claus without question until age seven or eight. No doubt ever creeps into their mind. He's just part of their world, part of their cosmos. Then, most children move past this and no longer believe in Santa. Similarly, children who are brought up in religious households believe in God without question until they are 11 or 12. Again, he's just part of their cosmos. And, generally speaking, no thought of questioning his existence enters their minds. As children enter adolescence, however, they often begin to question the existence of God. After a period of questioning, they may or may not decide that God exists. This has nothing to do with their relative states of enlightenment or lack thereof. It's the stage of questioning the worldview that their parents and elders have presented them with as their mind begins to think critically and abstractly in adolescence. That's important. This is a good analogy for what's happening in Europe following the Renaissance. Throughout the Dark and Middle Ages, Europeans were stuck in the black-and-white thinking of a child. They were told that their superiors knew the answers, and everyone had a superior. Even if you were a philosopher, there was Aristotle. Do you think you're smarter than Aristotle? Absurd. If you were a bishop, there was the Pope. How could you believe that you knew more than the Pope? To believe yourself above your superiors was unthinkable. It would upset the great chain of being. It would upend God's holy order. Now, after 150 years or so of the humanist thinking that the Renaissance had brought, Europeans were seriously questioning God's order that had gone unquestioned for so long. It was like a snowball rolling downhill. As thinkers began to drift further and further from a belief in God, they faced the following dilemma. If we are getting rid of religion, the thought system that has governed Western morals and ethics from the beginning of Western culture, what kind of moral ethical system are we replacing it with? Christianity always provided Westerners with their cosmology, their morality, their view of the world, the universe, and everything. Now thinkers needed to provide Europe with a new framework for people to view their place in the world and society. So let's look at the framework that emerged in Europe during this period. Back to Descartes. Here's why his statement, I think, therefore I am, was so important. It's not because it was such a brilliant idea. It's because of Descartes' change of perspective. All the great thinkers we've talked about so far in this podcast, Plato, Aristotle, Lao Tzu, Muhammad, and so many others that we haven't been able to cover, have dealt with this one question. Man's place in the cosmos. It's as if they were saying, here's the cosmos, understand it. Plato, Jesus, Lao Tzu, and all the rest had very different definitions of what the cosmos is, but they all define their cosmos. Then, after we understand the cosmos as they defined it, and only after we gain this understanding, can we come to true knowledge of who we are and our duties and obligations. These duties and obligations were always defined by our place in the cosmos. Descartes flipped this thinking on its head. He said, I'm not going to understand the world in the universe and spirit world that I live in and then figure out what I'm doing in it. He said that he could, simply by his own use of logic, open up the secrets that philosophers and sages had been striving for 
from time immemorial. This was revolutionary. Nobody had done anything like it in the history of philosophy. The sole exception that I know of was St. Augustine's book, Confessions, in which Augustine of Hippo, perhaps the most towering Catholic thinker ever, wrote a series of autobiographical books around 400 A.D. By reading his Confessions and understanding all of the mistakes, we, his readers, could understand how he went astray when he was younger and avoid those mistakes ourselves. This is similar to Descartes' use of the author as the source of knowledge and logic. But all of Augustine's other voluminous writings, even more than most, describe the Catholic cosmos in great detail and strictly defined one's role and duty as a Catholic. So although he probed the perspective of the self, he never came close to making the breakthrough Descartes did. So this was Descartes' great breakthrough, and I think, therefore, I am. He was saying, I don't need anyone to define the cosmos for me. I don't need to explain God and his universe and his rules to understand the mysteries of life. He was saying, I, myself, René Descartes, can figure these mysteries by my own use of logic. Here's how he put it in his book, Rules for the Direction of the Mind. I shall bring to light the true riches of our souls, opening up to each of us the means by which we can find, within ourselves, without any help from anyone else, all the knowledge that we may need for the conduct of life. Well done, René. But Francis Bacon was about to do him one better. Bacon was a high English noble who lived in England in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. He died in 1626. He was a statesman who served as Attorney General and Lord Chancellor of England, but of importance to us, he thought and wrote broadly. He never had any paradigm-changing thoughts like Descartes. He didn't come up with any truly amazing scientific discoveries like his contemporary Galileo, and isn't known for coming up with any particularly interesting philosophy. He did something better. He taught Europeans how to think. Throughout the Middle Ages, all philosophers and academics had taught and followed Aristotle. Aristotle had taught deductive reasoning, a kind of reasoning from the specific to the general. A classic example of Aristotelian deduction is his syllogism that starts with a general premise, examines a minor premise, and reaches a conclusion. The example that's always given is, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. This is a powerful logical tool and was a large leap in the history of thought. But there's a serious problem with this kind of deduction. If one of your premises is wrong, your conclusion will be too. Aristotle made several major mistakes for this reason. When medieval philosophers discovered Aristotle through contacts with the Arabs beginning in the 12th century, they quickly became enamored with his philosophy and he became the guiding light for thinkers throughout the Middle Ages. Aristotle was considered the greatest thinker of all time. In the Middle Ages, it was not thinkable to attempt to best your superiors. So once Aristotle became entrenched as the standard of thought in the Middle Ages, it was something akin to heresy to argue against Aristotle's thinking. During this period, one was recognized as a great thinker by being like Aristotle. To argue against his teaching was the best way to be ushered out of academia, or worse. 
Francis Bacon, however, came around a few generations after the Renaissance began. There had been over a hundred years of thinkers and artists studying the human condition. Bacon had a different message. Stop following Aristotle blindly. Stop reasoning from the general to the specific. Reason from the specific to the general. That is, observe the natural world. Observe it repeatedly. Only after you've made repeated and detailed observations do you attempt to incorporate all of your observations into a conclusion. And Bacon taught more than careful observation. He had taught the importance of controlled experiment. It was Bacon, perhaps 150 years after the start of the Renaissance, that came up with the process of thought that would ultimately lead us to what we now call the scientific method. In 1620, he published his magnum opus, a book called Novum Organum. This was a book that taught how to investigate the natural world, what we would now call science. In the 150 years or so following Bacon, European thought became increasingly secular. Therefore, European thinkers would need to rethink their cosmos in order to replace the cosmos that God, his angels, and the demons had inhabited during the Middle Ages and to find something to replace the great chain of being that had ordered the medieval world. This process would take another 150 years, but Bacon gave thinkers that would come after him a framework to be able to rethink their cosmos. His Novum Organum was written in Latin, so scholars throughout Europe were able to use the process described by Bacon to investigate their world. Before Bacon, European thought was deductive. After Bacon, it was inductive. If you want to learn more, A quick search will net tons of sites describing how Bacon opened reasoning to inductive methods. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it was Bacon probably more than any other that set thinkers free to think along new and novel paths, not to simply follow those who came before. He didn't overthrow Aristotle as the model of how to understand our cosmos, but he showed others the path by which they were able to do so. Descartes was paradigm-breaking but he was still an Aristotelian thinker. He believed that our senses misled us. If we were to trust our senses, we would be led astray because they aren't trustworthy. He was convinced he could discover ultimate reality simply through the process of thinking. This was Aristotelian. Bacon set Europe free to discover the world empirically. Lauren Isley said that Bacon, more than any man of his time, entertained the idea of the universe as a problem to be solved examined, meditated upon, rather than as an eternally fixed stage upon which man walked. Bacon wasn't the only person thinking along these lines at the time. I don't know if his contemporary Galileo Galilei read Novum Organum or not, but he was certainly a believer in close observation of the natural world. He opened the Western mind to what we can discover by close and careful observation. The list of his discoveries is long and impressive. He didn't discover the telescope, but he learned how to improve it significantly. When the Dutch discovered the telescope, it could magnify objects three times. After Galileo's refinements, he was able to improve magnification 30 times. Through this, he discovered the moons of Jupiter, that our moon's surface was not smooth, disproving Aristotle's thesis that all heavenly bodies are perfect orbs. He noted that Venus had phases like the moon. This meant that it could not have orbited the Earth, 
as everyone had always believed. He therefore became a believer in Copernicus's heliocentric theory that planets orbited the sun. He discovered that the Milky Way was made up of individual stars and was the first to discover sunspots. He discovered that light objects fall as fast as heavy objects, again, disproving Aristotle. He came up with a theory of relativity that deals with the motion of objects relative to each other, such as a man stationary on the shore and someone on a fast-moving ship. This theory remains accurate and is still cited today. He discovered the principle of the pendulum that led to the pendulum clock. He also began to describe the universe in mathematical terms, something that's basic to all science today, but was unknown or at least uncommon in Galileo's time. As you read the writers and thinkers that were active for the two and a half centuries following 1550, you see a steady move towards more and more abstract thinking. The Jewish philosopher Baruch Spinoza, who was about 10 years old when Galileo died and was active in the mid-1600s, served as a nice fulcrum in this progression. He wrote a lot on the subject of God, who he believed in. In his book, The Ethics, he challenged the main tenets of religion and of Judaism in particular. For Spinoza, God was not someone that stands outside nature, making changes here and there to suit his fancy. He said that there's no one to hear our prayers and to change things to make us happy or to punish us for our misdeeds. There's no afterlife, and man is not God's chosen creature. Spinoza's God was much more equated with nature itself. He set nature in motion with all its wonders and let it go. He's reason and truth, the animating force in everything that is. In order to know God, we should study nature, not the Bible. In reading Spinoza, we learn that we must align our will with that of the universe. There's something very serene when you read his writings. I wouldn't call him Taoist, but something about his writings is not totally dissimilar to Lao Tzu. Spinoza wasn't an atheist, but in his impersonal God, you can see European thought beginning to pivot from the highly personal God of the Middle Ages that was intimately involved in our lives, to lives lived without the daily influence of an omnipresent God. This will ultimately lead to a Europe that will move even further away from God, and even to several very influential thinkers like Nietzsche, who famously said that God is dead. More immediately, however, Spinoza and thinkers like him led to deism. Spinoza wasn't the first writer to suggest ideas of God that would ultimately come to be known as deism, but he was probably the best early one, and the one that is most often read today. Deism is the idea that God exists, he created the heavens and the earth, but he doesn't interact with us on a day-to-day -day basis. Essentially, he created the earth and everything in it, kind of like a master watchmaker who creates the perfect watch. Then he winds it up and lets it go on its own, without the need for ongoing repairs. Deism will be very influential for the next couple of centuries and was prevalent among our nation's founding fathers. The next pair of thinkers that rocked Europe's intelligentsia were Isaac Newton and Gottfried William von Leibniz, whose lives spanned the latter 1600s and early 1700s. Leibniz was an incredibly prolific thinker and made important contributions in the field of mathematics, logic, ethics, medicine, psychology, 
philosophy, geology, linguistics, theology, biology, physics, law, and politics, among other fields. He's known for saying that ours is the best of all possible worlds. God, in his view, would not create a world that is the second or third best of all possible worlds. More important, he created calculus, which has led us to untold discoveries since his time. Well, at least he claimed to have discovered calculus. That leads us to his dispute with Isaac Newton, who also claims to have discovered calculus. They actually probably each developed calculus independently. So who gets credit for developing calculus? First, I suppose we need to look at Newton a little. He wasn't nearly as prolific as Leibniz. A compilation of Leibniz's work is currently being published. So far, it runs 57 volumes. Newton was nothing like that. Newton is so huge in the history of science that when I was growing up, I thought he was a great scientist who discovered many things and wrote very broadly, like Galileo or Leibniz. He didn't. In fact, he didn't write all that much on science. He invented the reflecting telescope, which was a huge advance over the previously used refracting telescope, and is used by all visual spectrum astronomers today. He did some work in optics and discovered that what we see as white light is actually made up of what we now know as the colors of the rainbow. That's about it. He spent a ton of time working with alchemy and the belief that if he could correctly manipulate the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, he could make gold and discover the mysteries of the universe. Very medieval. That's it? And this guy's arguably the most famous scientist of all time? Oh yeah, he did one other thing. He wrote the Principia. Yep, it's true. He deserves all the glory he's had over the last few centuries for that one book. He was considering the force of gravity. As he thought about it, he thought about a cannon firing a cannonball, how it would travel up and outward for a while, and then, as gravity continued to act on it, the ball would be pulled downward to the ground, and ultimately it would fall to earth. Then he thought, if a cannon were to eject a cannonball with sufficient force, it would continue to be pushed toward the center of the Earth. But if a ball were to be given sufficient velocity, gravity's action in pushing the ball downward would be compensated by the curvature of the Earth. The result would be a cannonball that would continue circling the Earth and would never fall back to Earth. This would explain the motions of the heavenly bodies, such as the Earth orbiting the Sun and the Moon orbiting the Earth. Newton had a first-rate mind, however, and he took Galileo's decision to describe scientific discoveries mathematically to a new degree. There were no mathematics in Newton's day that could describe these complex motions, however, so he invented calculus to allow him to do the calculations that were necessary, not to mention his famous three laws of motion. Principia is a very complex book that described gravity and motion in ways never conceived of before. It's very possible that Newton's book, The Principia, represented the single greatest quantum leap in scientific knowledge of any one work. So who deserves the credit for discovering calculus? Leibniz's calculus was easier to understand and use than Newton's, and is the notation system we use today. So Leibniz wins. But then Newton's was the first to be used to describe motion and gravity. So Newton wins. I'm so confused. They were both very arrogant and could never recognize the accomplishments of each other. 
so it led to all kinds of drama at the time, in which Leibniz didn't come out very well. He died lonely and abandoned by his friends and was buried in an unmarked grave. Newton, on the other hand, died wealthy and was appointed president of the prestigious Royal Society of England. So he at least thought he won. Around this time, an English thinker, John Locke, was writing about people's rights and how we should be governed. I don't think he's recognized as one of the great philosophers today, but he had great influence on thinkers and government at the time, so he gets into my abbreviated summary of post-Renaissance Western thought here. According to Locke, people have certain basic rights, primarily liberty and property rights, that exist independent of government, and it's the government's job to protect those rights. Locke also wrote forcefully and persuasively on people's rights to believe as they chose. According to Locke, coercing religious uniformity leads to far more social disorder than allowing diversity. He gets a great deal of credit for the fact that after him, governments, at least the government of England, no longer locked people up for their beliefs. He was also a great educational reformer. England didn't have one earth-shattering revolution that changed everything like the United States. They developed their democratic institutions more gradually than we did. But they did have a revolution in which a very unpopular king, James II, who was commonly seen as tyrannical, was deposed and replaced by William of Orange, of William and Mary fame, in 1688. William was helped in his invasion of England by broad popular support and was much more liberal in his views on government than the unpopular James. The change of regimes was then accompanied by a liberalization of government and a rise in democratic institutions in England. This came to be known as the Glorious Revolution. This was the ideal time for a reformer such as Locke to be writing. French philosophers hadn't been completely quiet during this time, but the French had started a tradition that perhaps was one of the training grounds for the first-rate thinkers that the French were about to produce. Around this time, it became popular for members of the French intelligentsia to gather in the homes of the wealthy to discuss popular philosophical or social issues. These gatherings came to be known as salons and were generally hosted by well-educated women who did not sit passively and listen to men but would take a major role in facilitating the discussion. One of the thinkers that came out of this was Montesquieu. It was Montesquieu who gave us the theory of the separation of powers. He advocated dividing the power of government into three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial, with each one being prohibited from exercising the functions of the others. His book, The Spirit of the Laws, is considered one of the great works in political theory. It was Montesquieu's theory of separation of powers that led to the separation of powers in our own constitution. He said that everyone ought to be free to be his own governor, that each person should enjoy his property with as much rights as the prince, and that the public good consists in every person having their own property. He also said, when a democracy is founded on commerce, individuals might acquire great wealth without becoming corrupt. Montesquieu's contemporary Voltaire was a very interesting figure, and a fun figure to read about. Writing tracts critical of the king, a risky thing to do in absolutist France. Having to go into exile and avoid arrest. Traveling to Russia to be the personal philosopher of Catherine the Great, etc. He was incredibly prolific, 
writing more than 50 plays as well as books and scientific treatises, not to mention his philosophical works. He wasn't a fan of democracy, feeling it could lead to arbitrary aggression and mob rule. He also didn't like the absolutist monarchy of France, but felt that the constitutional monarchy that was brought to England under William of Orange with the so-called Glorious Revolution was the best form of government. Like so many of his contemporaries, Voltaire was a deist and was very critical of organized religion, which he saw as responsible for many excesses in French society. Still, he was a strong proponent of freedom of religion as well as freedom of speech. As God is no longer a constant presence in people's everyday lives, what now should organize our moral lives? For Voltaire, it was reason that should be the primary source of organizing society. We should overcome past evils through tolerance, dissemination of knowledge, and governmental reform. With Montesquieu, Voltaire, and others, French thought was taking a very rational turn towards reinventing the world. Then came Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Voltaire's younger contemporary, who was born in 1712 and injected a strong emotional component into French philosophy. We met Rousseau way back in our first episode. Rousseau felt strongly that civilization and progress hadn't improved society. Reports were filtering back to Europe of Native American tribes that described small, egalitarian, close-knit, and playful communities. These reports would then often describe the effect that the, quote, civilizing European cultures had on them. It made them long for guns, alcohol, beads, and mirrors. These things reportedly caused alcoholism, suicide rates to climb, and communities to fracture. For Rousseau, civilization had destroyed these noble savages. According to Rousseau, the noble savage had been innocent and happy in a state of nature. The march towards civilization awakened an unhealthy form of self-love and vanity. They compared themselves to others. It was only after we banded together in civilizations that we became plagued with vice and sin. When people had lived in a state of nature, they were drawn towards love, nature, respect for family, awe of nature, a curiosity about others, and a taste for music and simple entertainments. This noble savage naturally had empathy for others and their suffering. These are the things that make us happy and fulfilled. As with all of these philosophes, there's much more to Rousseau's writings. But one thing that's evident in reading almost everything he wrote is a strongly emotional flavor to his thought, especially his book Confessions, an autobiography in which no thought or peccadillo was too small for him to delve into in great emotional detail. In his emotional response to the increasing complexity of modern life, Rousseau was one of the first and probably the greatest of the Romantic philosophers. Romanticism was a movement that would sweep Europe from the mid-18th to the mid-19th century, and which rejected the calm rationality of a Montesquieu in favor of a more individual, subjective, emotional, spontaneous, and imaginative view of life. On the complete opposite end of the emotional spectrum from Rousseau was Adam Smith, who wrote in the latter half of the 17th century. He, of course, published his masterwork, the Wealth of Nations, in 1776. The Wealth of Nations may be a bit long and detailed for many, but for anyone who wants to see the workings of a first-class mind, I highly recommend it. 
As Newton opened up the world of gravity for us, so Smith opened up the world of economics. On the one hand, the book is too complex for us to dive deeply into it. On the other, we all know it. Before Smith, the prevailing economic view was mercantilism, in which it was believed that the world was a zero-sum game. If someone was getting rich, someone else was getting poor. Smith taught us that producing goods added value where none existed before, which could enrich both the producer and the buyer of the good. He taught us that land, labor, and capital are three factors of production necessary to produce goods, that specialization in which multiple workers produce one component of a good, which is then assembled, allows a producer to produce far more goods than having one person produce the entire product him or herself. He taught us about trade and that the invisible hand of the free market will guide an efficient use of resources throughout the larger economy. We owe our basic understanding of how capitalist economies work to Adam Smith. People should read Smith more deeply, though. He did an amazing job of describing how a capitalistic economy works in The Wealth of Nations, but he was simply describing how economies work. I've often heard Adam Smith cited by those who are justifying some of the harsher results of modern capitalism. This is inevitably by someone who hasn't read Adam Smith. Smith knew the inner workings of capitalism and explained them to us in The Wealth of Nations, but, as I've said, he had a first-class mind. He knew and had seen the harsher edges of capitalism and wrote about the steps he felt were necessary to ease the burden on those who were relegated to endlessly repetitive tasks, left unemployed, disabled, or otherwise burdened by the capitalist system. For those interested in his more humane writings, I highly recommend reading His Theory of Moral Sentiments. It's an excellent book and has probably been largely overlooked because The Wealth of Nations is just so outstanding. At the very least, taking a peek at a YouTube summary would be worthwhile. I'll close today's episode with Immanuel Kant. Just this one episode wouldn't be enough to summarize his great book, The Critique of Pure Reason, much less all of his other great writings. But let me take a stab at part of his thought. So what does it mean to be a moral person? We can say that the only thing that's truly good is the will to do the right thing. If you follow all the rules and obey all laws out of fear of getting caught if you don't, you aren't really doing good. You're simply acting out of fear. It's only the will that comes from within you to do good that can be said to be good. Kant was a very logical person. It's just the way he saw the world. In his critique of pure reason, he's trying to get to morality through logic. For him, it comes from the same place. It only makes sense. It's through the use of logic he gets to his famous categorical imperative. I never ought to act except in such a way that my maxim should become a universal law. There's so much more to come, but we've got to stop somewhere, and I suppose this is as good a place as any. Beethoven and Goethe were walking on the sidewalk in some German town. A nobleman came toward them on the sidewalk, and Goethe stepped off the sidewalk to let him pass, as had been the custom since time immemorial. Beethoven told him to get back on the sidewalk. He said, There are thousands of them, 
there are only two of us. I don't know if this story is apocryphal or not, but it's certainly consistent with something I'd expect Beethoven to say. He just didn't consider nobility to be superior to him in any way. Beethoven and Goethe were just a little later than our time period that we're dealing with today, but this vignette is out as it shows us where we're going with all this. It would have been unthinkable for Descartes to be so arrogant toward the nobility when he published his Discourse on Method in 1637. Yet, by the time Beethoven and Goethe would have been walking down the street a couple hundred years later, not only could Beethoven be so arrogant toward nobles, they scrambled to get him to appear and play in their salons. The world of Renaissance humanism that had started by studying the human form and condition in the day of Michelangelo and da Vinci began to rethink the entire world, religion, philosophy, moral foundation, science, astronomy, economy, their cosmos, if you will. By the time we reach Kant in the latter half of the 1700s, European thinkers had rethought the nature of the world and man's place in it. We watched in today's episode as Francis Bacon taught thinkers objective, inductive, database methods to evaluate the world and to begin us on the path that today we call science. Galileo and Newton showed us what the application of this kind of approach could bring us. Spinoza and similar thinkers brought us a deistic world. We spoke before about children questioning their parents' religion as they gain the power of abstract thought in their adolescence. My experience is that they often end up agnostic, saying, it's impossible to tell if there's a God or not. Deism was the 18th century's agnosticism. It was God-light. There is a God. He just doesn't interact with us now that he's created us. John Locke told us about the natural rights that we were all born with and government's responsibility to protect those rights. Montesquieu rethought government and provided us with the ideas of the separation of powers that formed the basis of our Constitution. Voltaire defended the rights and liberties of people. And Kant gave us a basis of being moral within a framework of pure reason in order to live moral lives in a world without God. You can see the expansion of the worldview of these thinkers as we get closer to the 1750s. Descartes could imagine that he could come up with some of the basic answers to life and existence just by himself without defining man's role in the larger cosmos something unthinkable to earlier philosophers. Yet he could never have imagined him rethinking his particular place in the social order. By the time we reach Beethoven 200 years later, Beethoven couldn't imagine himself as the social inferior of a noble. The great chain of being had been stood on its head. As you read through these thinkers, you can see their thought becoming more and more abstract as we move from the 1600s through the 1700s. By Kant, we have a new cosmos, one either without a god or in which we were created by a god, but he has been largely absent from our world. And instead of us owing our fealty to our lord and king, it's the government that owes us the protection of our natural rights. We see an entirely new world and universe through Galileo's telescopes, Newton's gravity, and so many other discoveries. And finally, we've learned that we should lead a moral life in the absence of God. 
Europe was on the verge of an industrial revolution that would bring about a revolution in the way we live on the order that we hadn't seen since the discovery of agriculture and bring us into the modern era. But before we got there, we needed to transform the way we saw the cosmos from the superstitious, never question your superiors, great chain of being mindset that the Renaissance had been trying to pull us out of to a scientific rationalist worldview. Great movements are accompanied by great thinkers. Democracy in ancient Athens was accompanied by thinkers that are still studied today and ultimately led to Aristotle. After the fall of Rome, though, thought decided to take a holiday throughout the Middle Ages. Thinkers who thought outside acceptable lines were referred to the Inquisition. Needless to say, most thinkers remained within acceptable doctrine. When Europe finally decided that it was not going to burn people for what they thought, it seemed as though the centuries of pent-up ideas needed to come pouring out. An amazing flowering of thought that was the Enlightenment was a result. I've named this approximately 150-year period from Descartes' Discourse on Method to Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, the Second Axis, my turn. In the Axial Age, the period from 800 BC to the time of Christ, humankind changed its understanding of the cosmos from the pantheistic, often animal or partially animal gods that they knew and who often demanded their sacrifices to the gods and belief systems that many of us worship and have adopted today. Still, the cosmos of the Middle Ages was a very superstitious place. By the end of the second axis, our world replaced a belief in God as the prime mover of society and the physical world to the very rational and science-based cosmos we inhabit today. I'd argue that this was a shift in our understanding of our world and our place in it that was more profound than the shift that occurred during the first axis. Hence, for me at least, it deserves the moniker, the second axis. So many great reads this week. How to pick one. I've mentioned several. They're all worth looking at. But to pick one, I'm going to suggest Candide by Voltaire. It's a witty, irreverent poke at Leibniz and is We Live in the Best of All Possible Worlds philosophy. It's a fun read and short. It won't take you long. I think you'll enjoy it and it'll give you a taste of life and thought of the time. Enjoy. See you next week.